good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, whenever you happen to be listening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Stephen Fullwood. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm actually pretty good. Thank you for asking. All right. Yeah, we were running a little bit late today, and um, I, I appreciate Stephen's patience. Uh, so... Uh, we're, he uh, today's topic was uh, suggested by Stephen, and uh, he uh, he had some personal anecdotes around the topic. But uh, what prompted it was uh, an article that was in the September 2017 issue of Harper's uh, called "How America Lost Its Mind," written by uh, Kurt Anderson. Uh, so, Stephen, do you want to lead us into that and and sure, sure. why um, this uh, something you want to talk about today? So I was um, casting about looking for ideas for the podcast for this week, and I realized that I had, in the stretch of a week, um, had been talking with friends who have been dealing with aging parents and illness with their parents mm-hmm. and the effect it's been mm-hmm. having on their personality or their their work, their work um, livelihood, and also realized that I've been talking with friends who were either depressed or had suicidal ideation going on and they were just really exhausted um, at work or with in relationships and so forth. And something about that article, I've been returning to this article for a moment now, um, thinking about what, what constitutes mental health in the U S you know, specifically the U S I know that's a really large topic, but I guess connecting what's happening now in my life and the article with my own personal moments in the last two years I wanted to kind of discuss with you and sort of um, ask you to sort of weigh in on how you see the health of the nation connected to the individual and how um, not looking for solutions but just looking for like your own ways in which you you think about mental health Mm. and so my mental health um, issues I've been in and out of therapy for about a good seven or eight years right now I'm not in therapy and in 2016 Mm -hmm. After a long illness, my brother passed away. It was very, very devastating, very painful. And two months Older after, or younger brother? My younger brother, he, he so at the time he was 48. I had, he was going Oof, to be 48 man. because he was born on Christmas and we're two years apart. So I had just turned 50 in January. He passed in yeah. May. And he had um, both a heart issue and he also had a, um, issues with... Um, uh, neurological issues. He was having strokes all the time, starting at about 2011. And so, was uh, was his was his death unexpected, or was it a long struggle with illness? It or? was a long struggle with illness, up and down. But then, after a while, he his health deteriorated, and it looked as if he was going to pass. But there were always those moments of mm-hmm. he may get better, or those moments he's getting worse. You know, you need to come to Toledo. I'm living in New York City now, so I miss him. Yeah, and I love him. And two months after that, my grandmother passed away, my paternal grandmother. And so mm-hmm. 2016. Were you close with her? I was close with her, yeah. I, was, I wasn't, I didn't grow up with her. I, grew, I became close to her as an adult. And she's, mm-hmm. she was having issues with her memory. And so I don't believe she was diagnosed as having Alzheimer's, but she could remember But some now. kind of dementia. Yeah. Right. Well, no, excuse me. She could remember then, but now was an issue. I understand. And so. Yeah. So I don't know, it was, you know, a combination of both the individual loss and then just, you know, and I think people, the soundtrack to my childhood was eroding around the same time. So there was Natalie Cole, Maurice White of Earth, Wind and Fire, Prince, David Bowie, that was really kind of like, it's funny when people talk about, well, a celebrity is not your, 
your brother or your your grandmother, but it's what they provided for you in terms of um, either music or filmic sort of like background to when you're growing up. So it was, it was um, yeah. obviously their destiny. But well, we don't just live in, yeah, yeah, we don't just live in one world, right? I mean, no, so absolutely. we live in our familial world and then we live in a cultural world and we yes. have these markers and people that we identify with that are potent and powerful and, and help, uh, help shape who we are. No, you, you put it really well. Absolutely. And it felt like... 2016 and then at the end of it donald trump is elected and it's just so i felt like um god i felt exhausted i felt exhausted yeah. and disappointed and as i mentioned to you in the letter the email i sent you is that um i think depression and being upset is a natural response to things that depress you or make you sad and sure, so absolutely you balance from my perspective my thing is to try to stay per, you know present to to work out, to journal, and to try to get these feelings out to be with friends and not to isolate myself, but to really kind of express those feelings. Mm -hmm. And so last mm -hmm. year, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up and bring it back to the article, and in May of 2017, mm -hmm. I left a job um, that I'd been at for 19 years. And it was, mm -hmm. it, it, it was I was mourning now my brother, um, my grandmother, and a job that I had for 19 years. And sure, right. And it was something that I wanted to do so I could, you know, invest more time in my art forms. But thinking about how the Trump train was going around that time, and it was just, it was one, oh my God, what the fuck did he do now? You didn't want to read your Twitter. You didn't want to, you know, read the, read the news because he was always doing something. So I never felt like I was getting any kind of grounding. And then that sort of the latter part of 2017, I started to become more, um, get back in my body and more and more healthy and more thoughtful. But it was still a struggle for like some time. And I, I read the article that I sent you and I thought that mm -hmm. this idea and I was connecting mental health, mental illness, but also this loss of security that is sort of spread out the sort of like, you know, throughout the article, this notion of there being this objective truth and that because as Americans, we can choose our own truth, but we've gotten out of hand with it. And, <laughs> and I felt like, no, I think that's not really it, but I think it's provocative enough to sort of discuss. So I brought it to you to sort of talk to you so about which that. did you just, just to clarify, which did you think that wasn't really it? What part of the, um, of his argument did you well, uh, I not fully identify with? So it's actually the entire article, and I'll tell you why. What, okay. what it right, was for enough. me was that the 60s, of which I was born into, um, sure. when you look at American history, like it was one of the first times that America had to sort of reckon with its, its complexity in a way that it, it didn't have to before. So you had, you had this long sort of current going on with the, with the civil rights movement, feminism, mm -hmm. LGBTQ rights and culture, mm -hmm. black, black power, black arts. And those moments were really like critical just to rethink what it meant to be an object versus, you know, be a subjective. And so what it, what for me, I thought it brought a more engaging look at American history, culture, and so forth, that there were, we were starting to be not the melting pot, but be a little bit more of a, um, a complex sort of thing and we always were but it wasn't always in movies or in music or more music than in movies but yeah. just in certain sectors and so i felt like america had at one point was on the verge of becoming the thing that it claimed to be 
And so right. his whole article was like, we've lost our collective minds. And it started in the 60s. And the internet has given us access to all these fringe groups. And I feel like, well, n- no, not really. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I, I'm so with I you. I, I didn't really, I, I didn't fully agree with the premise of the article that mm-hmm. uh, that you can, that somehow we have just recently lost our minds. I right, mean, exactly. I, I mean, there's so there's so many different ways <laughs> it, to take. What does it mean to lose uh, your mind? Yes. To take the discussion. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the one of the things that I thought about when I was reading the article, which I just. To me, I just I would call bullshit on. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, there's a story about Thomas Jefferson, yes. um, mm-hmm. who in many ways I think is uh, is kind of the apotheosis, like the embodiment of what it means to be an American, right? I mean, so author of the Declaration of Independence, which I would still defend rhetorically. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think you get okay. a much better articulation of what it means to be um a human being uh that said this That's is the it. same guy that like <laughs> sold his children like literally sold his children Absolutely. like was had a mistress sally hemmings and, yeah. and this is something historians resisted for years oh, uh, of course but it of turns course. out like they, they, they it turns out like now they have like genetic evidence he literally sold his children and he mm-hmm. one of the there's a story in his uh uh l eller i forget uh, which biography it was that I had read, but mm-hmm. uh, there's a story of um, in in Monticello when he would host these parties, and he had these elevators built into the wall, and you would put an empty tray on the elevator, and then the wall would slide close, uh-huh. and then a few minutes later you would open it, and there would be full drinks on the tray. <laughs> okay, and you know you can like this was this magic trick he would impress the, the like a guests at Monticello. Yes, that's exactly what it was. It was a dumbwaiter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and of course, so what What was this dumbwaiter? Well, this dumbwaiter was a bunch of slaves that were Enslaved breaking people, their yeah. backs mm-hmm. to pull to, to pull a rope, to, to bring a tray down to the kitchen that mm-hmm. no one else got to see, to pour drinks for them, to clean the glasses, to get Absolutely. them back up on the dumbwaiter. Like, that dumbwaiter was the absolute embodiment of American denial around race well and the construction said. of white well identity. Uh huh. And so that was fucking crazy then. Like, mm-hmm. and it's crazy now. now. Like, right. and, and and it's not, you know, one of the things that will often happen is, you know, well, you know, we've, we've come and, and I'm not saying we haven't made progress. I would defend the idea that we have made some social progress, but, mm-hmm. but, the idea that they didn't know in the 18th century that mm-hmm. owning other human beings and raping other human beings and enslaving other human beings was wrong mm-hmm. is nuts. They all knew it. I of mean, course. they would write about it. There are their essay. I mean, this wasn't a surprise to them. It wasn't all of a sudden like Martin Luther King went, you know, by the way, America, it's really not fair that you have a segregated society. Mm-hmm. We were in denial about it. And denial continue to be. is, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. And it's a mm-hmm. mode of operation that America, I don't want to single us out too much because many, 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 many uh, large scale human organizations function on denial, right? So it's yes. not like we're the only ones, but I am an American. We live in America. So it is the one that I am most intimately familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I do think he gets that wrong in the article. We've we've mm-hmm. been crazy for a very, 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 very long, long time. time. And with that craziness, like that, 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 that sort of split, you know, I don't even know if it's just diametric 
diametrically opposed. It's probably a lot more complex. This idea of freedom while you're holding other people captive. And those captive people had to be modernist because they had to think about what was going, we need to get over there because right now this is untenable. And I think a lot about the ways in which we, we say one thing in America, but we do other things. And that, so this notion of, you know, it feels like, I'll be straight up, I felt like it was a white man who's, who was losing or feeling like he was losing some sort of ground um, in this equality war. <laughs> and it's an equality war. So I, I, I listened to him and I read the piece and I was like, I really like your references. I just you feel like you went in to bake a cake, but you came out with a pie. And the article makes some, like I said, some pretty interesting points around, you know, people kind of experimenting with drugs and thinking about the 60s and, and thinking about other ways of thinking about stuff, this counterculture that was developing. And I was just like, well, you know, I think those things actually made people a lot better um, or a lot more thoughtful, I guess, mm -hmm. because for like the longest time we didn't have access to each other the way we have access to each other now. And that the internet's not evil. It's simply like a tool. It's like a gun. You know, you don't have to shoot anyone. <laughs> you know, it's your choice. Maybe this is not the best metaphor, but the idea of the internet for me means I can go find out, I can find information. And mm -hmm. that's so important in a society that claims, you know, freedom for all, you know, education, which was really never um, mm -hmm. an education to some degree. It's and that's not, another. Yeah, it, go ahead. It, it's not how a lot of people use the internet, though. True. For, I mean, at least I mean, at, at least for kind of reality-based engagement with with the world around them. I mean, I you know, I is that is that yours? Do you believe that, or is that like you know something you've read, or some kind of crunching, or a sort of a philosophical structure? Because I've heard that before. Do and I always believe wondered, that? Yeah, that most people don't use the internet. I didn't say most. Okay. I do think that a significant. Uh, portion of the population uses it in that way because they use any information that way, right? I'm not saying that there's something particularly bad about the internet. That's one of the okay. ways that I, I I didn't agree with the article. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think most people are not very well equipped. Uh, maybe we haven't given them the right tools. Um, we haven't constructed society in a way to to make them equipped. But to deal with the arbitrariness of uh, the way we've set ourselves up in large scale societies. So I don't want to be abstract about it. Like I, I want to be I want to be very concrete. One, this, so let's go back to Jefferson for a second. One of the things that Jefferson should be credited for is he called it. He said. You know, basically, when you decide to associate as a people, you are authorizing yourselves for maybe three to five generations. Anything after that is an arbitrary authorization of authority and power. Like, you actually, like, there is no, it's built on quicksand, right? right. There is no, like, sort of entrenched power structures are that way because of momentum, not virtue. And, oh, of course. and Jefferson yeah. understood that in many of the and many of the founding fathers, uh, I mean, and I understand that's kind of a load of founding people mm -hmm. uh, understood that they knew that. Right. Uh, they were also crazy. And, and I mean, you brought up earlier, I mean, whiteness. Right. And, and, and I want to put that in air quotes, what it meant to be white. Right. Could only be constructed in relation to what it meant to be black. Absolutely. What it meant to be 
not a white person. Like you couldn't understand it. I mean, you see in these like in, in the pamphlets that were circulated at that time, uh, Furstenberg, who's a, he's a historian who's written about this, like literally they talk about what it means to be free in relation to what it meant to be a slave. Right? Of course, yeah. and of course, they were hiding at the time the 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 hundreds of slave rebellions. Like I think, I mean, I think as a as a reasonable person, you could probably get behind the argument. Like, no, okay, you should fight for your own freedom. But guess what? They were regularly like there were regularly. hundreds of slave rebellions. Hundreds of wanted, hundreds of insurrections. None of them wanted to Absolutely. be slaves. Nobody wanted to be yes, enslaved. Like Absolutely. it was happening. That's right. It happened all the damn time. And that, so, sure, you're right. People need to fight for their freedom, and they were. No, people were doing it. You're so right. And that history has largely been suppressed. I mean, you can hear a little bit about yeah, Nate, oh, absolutely. Nate, Nate absolutely. Turner, but there's a wonderful book by sure. Vincent Harding called um, There's a River. And he talks about all these different movements and uses mm -hmm. the um, uses a lot of newspapers and um magazines and just like you know laws at the time where and court cases where people were constantly fighting constantly fighting mm -hmm. for freedom black people people who absolutely and then also i mean 1860 what was it, 1860 this um the fugitive slave act of 1860 was resurrect i mean was in, enacted because so many people were running around that time there was a rumor of war 1850 <laughs> yeah you don't need a you don't need a fugitive slave act that's right you don't need it if if no one's escaping, like you need those laws because people are are breaking, are are not abiding, <laughs> and we're establishing this insanity. <laughs> we're not the insanity, but the the fact that there was um that America may have been always working with a, of a poison mine or at least a slanted one when we're talking about freedom yeah. here. And so the sixties, like again for yeah. me, I have to yeah. reiterate it. It felt like when I look at the sixties and I read about this stuff, I read about the sort of mind. Um, altering drugs that people were using um, was it uh, not PCP but um, L uh, LSD L LSD and the kinds of things that were going on there which psilocybin right like that. and rethinking the way um, definitely opening their minds to other ways of living now this is also the time though right. because I'm also I love cults I love cults American cults specifically in the 20th century there were a number of people starting cults and using that people wanting to find out something different. And we're looking for people who had either left the church or the mosque or the temple or never had any um, mm -hmm. established religion in their life. And they were just looking for something to believe in. And a lot of these men, a lot of these mm -hmm. men, a lot of these men who, who will call themselves white were establishing these things from you, Jim Joneses to um, L Ron Hubbard. And it's an amazing sort of point to kind of think about where can Americans, <laughs> can Americans be, um, can Americans live up to this idea of freedom? Can they live up to it? And what does the freedom like cost? And this is where the author and I kind of like start to talk similarly, because if left with freedom, what do you do with it? And when you don't find it and right. you go back to mental health, I think a lot about the moment where now people are feeling um, groundless. They don't feel like the government's capable of getting anything mm -hmm. done. And, and those people who I would call patriotic, I feel like they've got one ear closed, one eye closed, and they're just pushing ahead with this support the president. He knows what's going on. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Right. It's exhausting. It's painful. Yeah. I mean, so I think, I mean, I'm glad you brought it back around to mental health because I, it, they are all 
it deeply connected. It's a, yeah. People need structures, right? Human beings need structure. You can't, mm -hmm. I mean, even, even the most radical existentialists, Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, they understood this. I mean, you, you actually need structures within which to flourish as a human being. And it, and so you get this proliferation of communities. You you know mm -hmm, you call mm -hmm. them cults. You know right. basically just small small religions. Basically people kind of striking out on their own. That is that is. I mean all those people that came across on all the Ninas and Pintas and all that the Mayflowers yeah. and all those ships. Mm -hmm. They were all going to establish religious communities. Yeah. They, I mean you know Jamestown. I mean, if you want to use the vernacular, was uh, I was certainly from the perspective of the the Brits would have been cult like. Mm -hmm. um, okay, you had a number that has always been Cane Ridge, the gathering at Cane Ridge, which was uh, has been cited by a few theorists and historians as kind of the start of quote unquote American religion, American Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. This spontaneous you know, Woodstock being another kind of moment of overflow of enthusiasm. Um, in this this sort of free associations of people around a transcendent idea. The thing is, it's really hard. So I, I have, and maybe maybe just by virtue of my background, obviously being a white heteronormative male, mm -hmm. I probably have, it's probably easier for me to conjure uh, uh, sympathy for uh, people that are like Trump supporters, even though mm -hmm. everything that he stands for is anathema to me and everything yeah, I oppose, repugnant. all of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very much. Uh, and he himself is Republican. So, I mean, but but let's, I don't want to go down that road. So, but, <laughs> okay. you know, from the point of view of a 2016 Trump supporter, mm -hmm. they didn't feel like they were the apex predator in the culture, right? Now, you as an educated intellectual may recognize, clearly recognize um, the history of not just literal physical oppression, mm -hmm. but the history of cultural oppression and the literal whitewashing of um, cultural contributions by basically everything. Uh, blacks and Native yeah. Americans, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. So, but but if you aren't an elite, right? If you're living in a town in South Dakota or in Ohio, like you are not consciously, not only are you not consciously participating in that elitism, you are not nurtured by it because it has left you behind. No. And, and yeah. you, and if you, if, if you want to like, just what does it hear like to the ear, right? For a person in white America to be to have their language circumscribed in such a way that you know it's acceptable to talk about now it, i i must i definitely for anyone that's listening i am bracketing all of this is not my point of view right <laughs> i am recapitulating Are you sure it's not your point I, of I, view I am, travis am, okay it's not your, it, it, <laughs> i'm i'm restating uh -huh. what i would imagine that feels like oh and also and that is the type the type of racial politics that have and the rhetorics surrounding it mm -hmm. that have been championed by the left to me mm -hmm. now this is me i think is a dead end okay not because i am not for equality for like every stripe 
equality for, you know, every uh, way of living, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But because it is ultimately a mirror of whiteness. If, if, you have, if you have allowed the historical terms upon which your identity is constructed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to rest upon the history of dominance and the rhetoric of dominance. Oh, yeah. I.e. vis-a-vis whiteness. Right. Then you are only recreating and reconstituting the very same power structures that have oppressed you. Oh, absolutely. Here it is, though. So I want to get back to the dispossessed. The dispossessed mm-hmm. believe in things that I'm, I can't, I, that I've known all my life because I see it in the movies. I've seen it. I've read it in the books. I've heard it in the music. I've listened to people when I grew up in Ohio, how whites felt that mm-hmm. their president wasn't, um, wasn't supporting them or wasn't for them. And this was, um, this is Clinton. And we're talking about about Obama. Oh, Clinton. Okay, and we're talking right, about Clinton. Right, okay. So this is not even Barack Obama. No, <laughs> um, right. These were working class whites, and I came from a working class poor background. And we're all working at Pizza Hut, and two or three of us, black and white, were in college. So uh-huh. the the sort of sympathy I have for people who are not doing any work around understanding their their um their 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 position or their their um what do you call it their station in life it continues it 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 grows when i when i learn when i learn and sort of take in this notion of a cult right and how people just want to be fed people just want a nice house to live Uh in they want something to believe in as maria bamford said in one of her jokes she was like you know anything you want to know check the manual you have a dress code great you know there are these things that people um, some people are looking for as a form of security. I get it. I feel though, um, what's left the left behind is what I call them because whiteness didn't right. work for them in the way that it seems to work for the elite. Seems to. That's a there's a there's a comma there. Right. But but there's also this sort of exhaustion with how do you go to the table when you're with one set of tools, when someone doesn't have a set of tools and they all they have is entitlement? How do you work through those really heavy, dense conversations rooted in history that someone probably doesn't know about, doesn't care about, but just feels like their problems are basically mm-hmm. Stephen G. Fullwood, black male, that I'm getting ahead because somehow <laughs> <laughs> there are, you know, I love the way that the, the perversion of um, it's the idea uh, someone got a job because he's he's black or she's a woman, he's disabled, but it was just really effectively dismantled in the 90s with Clarence Thomas and so forth. It was affirmative action. Thank goodness. I have a brain cell sure. working. Uh-huh. And it, affirmative action <laughs> was just simply trying to not even really even the playing field. And it wasn't solely race. It was gender. It was disability. It was a number of things written into this um, this idea to bring people, because it's not like any black person or any woman or disabled person um, had just become qualified <laughs> after this law was enacted. Sure, it didn't course, happen right. that way. So you have to think about the logic behind it and think about what it means for people to feel like they have they have been um, left behind or not valued because of a system that was already rigged 
that they don't acknowledge as rigged, <laughs> but still want to talk about um, white oppression, which feels doesn't feel like a, a yeah. term to me. It's like reverse yeah, racism. So, it's like, what does that even mean? Well, okay. So what? Let me. Two things. I feel sure. like I feel like the conversation could be usefully bifurcated into the people that deploy these stories and the people that mm-hmm. use and live these stories. Oh, that's a good so, one. So okay. you know, Tucker, Tucker Carlson, you know, Donald Trump, Stephen mm-hmm. Munch, I mean, whatever. It's a long list of people. I mean, the Republican Party on the na- at least at the level of national politics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. since you know Moynihan and the whole benign neglect and all that, this kind of stuff. They, they, but they def- but they misused Moynihan. They did, and it was a problematic. But we can uh, talk about that later. That was a problem. No, I didn't mean actually. I, you're oh, absolutely you. right. Yeah. They misused mm-hmm. him. They misused yeah. that. Like mm-hmm. they they use that to 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 play the racial oh, uh, political card to stay to you know to to compete at the on the national political stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, there's that kind of cabal of people. Cabal, mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> and then there's the people that, as you were kind of characterizing before you know, just want to be fed, like want to have their house and, you know, show up and raise their kids or maybe have their affair and their couple of divorces. I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want to sort of (laughs) champion the noble poor. There's plenty of assholes that are poor people, just like there's plenty of assholes that are wealthy people. Uh, So so (laughs) I would like to split those two things apart because I, I see two different levels of responsibility, right? I see the level of responsibility. So, you know, when you're describing, you know, how do you sit at the table with people that believe those things? Absolutely. It depends on where you're at on on that spectrum. So uh-huh. there are plenty of quote unquote whites. Right. And, and there is a reason that I always quote unquote that because race is a bullshit construction that mm-hmm. was, you know, from the 17th century right. that we still live with, but Absolutely. Uh, that y- y- you've got those people, but then you have the, so then you have the people like you and me, mm-hmm. right. And, and other, I mean, we have the benefits for a variety of reasons, whether it's luck, whether it's predisposition, mm-hmm. um, uh, to have had the benefits of a first class education, even if that first class education was because of a damn library card, right? Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. but we, our, I feel, right, in a kind of Marvel Comics way, okay, that intellectuals have a responsibility to imagine more capacious frameworks for people to live inside. I completely agree with that. Yes. And absolutely. And, and, I do think that post not not the people in the 60s. I mean, these are so I mean, you can't tell me that that I'm going to say I mean, I am unconvinced that I will ever say anything about race in America that is more potent than what Ralph Ellison said in Invisible Man. I won't. No one will. Like, uh, I disagree that with that for so and, many reasons cuz Ralph Ellison is explaining an issue that I find very interesting because he wasn't invisible to me. It's the optics of that that novel that I find very problematic. But go ahead, because I think you might have something more uh, to okay. say than Ralph this, Ellison. That would make make certainly a good conversation. <laughs> I'm specifically talking about the, the way in which he... Um, uh, kind of uh, right. I mean, it's kind of the whole uh, locus of the novel around the construction of white paint, like yeah. the very, the very potency, the whitest white, right, is this drop of blackness. But anyway, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we'll we'll bracket Ellison. So okay, yeah, we'll bracket him. Um, That's good. And so you had the people Baldwin, King, all the rest of them, right? Mm-hmm. That were 
in the business of com- of combating on the front lines this bullshit rhetoric and mm. framework around separate but equal racial segregation, racial politics, mm-hmm, racialized mm-hmm. science, all the rest of it. Oh yeah. That le- that legacy I do feel has been largely abandoned or sidelined by a doubling down on cultural studies and all of the other sort of tribal intellectual uh, frameworks that have arisen in the last 20 or 30 years. Like, what Mm. have we provided to the people? What Mm. have we provided to the people that haven't had the benefits of our education to, Mm. to pursue, to hope for? Mm-hmm. Like what, what's the other end of these frameworks that are, uh, around, uh, intersectionality, things like that. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're very, so what I was going to um, comment on was this idea of the responsibility of an intellectual or, or an activist or an artist, anyone who might have more information mm-hmm. than the regular folk, you know, or more ways of seeing or different mm-hmm. lenses to take in and crunch information. Although I, I do question mm-hmm. Because there are different Baldwins at different times in his career. And Ellison, I definitely feel like mm-hmm. he, um, he, there there are questionable things that I have about not just the Invisible Man, but some of his politics. But I'll leave that there for a moment. I want to go back to this um, responsibility. The responsibility, the tribal part of it, like earlier on when you were talking about this, the cultural part of it, I said, well, you know, I'm not that versed in knowing what's going on in the academy. When I worked at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, I had the benefit of talking to different academics and different points in their career about their their politics and what they were writing and so forth, but it was by no means well-read in right. what they did. What I'm curious about, though, I mean, and I'm, I'm fully in alignment with you in agreement, is just imagining what's possible. The imagining of not looking mm. at the same structures and trying to use those structures to get anywhere else because they clearly don't work and they never have worked around race, around gender, around a number of things. Well, well they worked for some people. They, <laughs> they don't really, really work well for them. For some people, I've argued with you before on this. They don't work for them either because they don't – because how, how, um, how comfortable can you be if you have to have your foot on someone's neck all the time? Like it's an it's a it's a lie. It's a lie. It's been a lie for like the longest. It doesn't so, work. So here's the thing. So the, the, the so to jump in for a second. So mm-hmm. it's only a lie for the person that has to have their boot on their neck. There were people that had accumulated so much material prosperity, they didn't have to put their own boot on someone else's neck. They had Jeeves put their boot on the guy's neck, and they got to ride around in their carriages and sort of. But, but you it's know, all about perspective. Views here. about the meaning of life. It's all about perspective here, meaning that those very things that constitute a good life in the U.S. have are like everything else has been sold to us, uh, like the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, it doesn't. It's it's something that exists, but something that's not really obtainable because, um, looking at people who have wealth, accumulated wealth, or are rich, don't. They're poor examples of living. They're poor examples of living. Um, it's the idea that you have to have the biggest or have the most access to, and therefore somehow your life is better. When you listen to some of these people, and when they, when the, um, when the veil comes down, and there's that moment where you hear something, you know, I'm lonely, I'm this, whatever. I mean, 
It sounds like the propaganda of a 1930s sort of film epic. Oh, daddy, he's rich, but he's so alone mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But there's some truth in that. And there's also <laughs> that, that lack of imagining that life could be any better, that your life is, that your life is better because you accumulate these things. I find that terribly offensive and terrible, just completely terrible and very anti-human. You know, I just feel like it doesn't actually. Okay, so I, yeah. So I, I would say, uh, so I think you and I would, I I don't, I don't agree with that. Not because (laughs) I think that the pursuit of wealth is, is, uh, is inherently valuable. I definitely, I I agree with your criticism of that, Uh but I think for a lot of people, particularly, you know, in America, in Western European uh, countries, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some research around this, right? Like you're your level of happiness goes up as you approach $70,000 a year, right? And then it kind of levels off and and then you've got some disagreement around like amounts of money after that. There's some research that shows that mm-hmm. happiness dips again if you overaccumulate and you know this kind of stuff. So well, who are these? Uh, and I'm you know and you could you don't have to Oh, go ahead. Yeah, this, this is the idea of like who's Okay, so the people who are doing these studies, I'm sure these are reputable people. I have no problem with that. My issue here is... Can you repeat? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that again? Sure. So I have no problems with the people who've done the studies or even the people reporting. But I'm also thinking that levels of happiness related to what? To poverty, obviously, to not having access, not to have that certain amount of money, to having a certain cachet or access. Absolutely. But there's something about it that still feels false. And I can't get under it enough sometimes in my thinking or around it, but it feels like, no, I'm not, I'm not sure if that constitutes happiness. It might maybe call it something else, you know, <laughs> call it something else, you know, and I'm sure call that people do feel than, that it is happiness, it but I'm not sure happiness. my happiness means, or not even my happiness, um, my contentedness is really largely dependent upon my families and dependent upon the communities I'm around and my friends, my close circle of friends, the family that I chose. And so when I see people say that, they, you know, there's a lot of pretending going on when you have money and have wealth. How, how happy could someone be with that? <laughs> Do you know, how happy could one actually yeah, be? Yeah, no, so I... I, I with pomp and circumstance so like that. So here's the thing. I don't think... Yeah, so I think if if that is if that is the end, then no, probably no. That's not going to purchase you any actual uh, uh, satisfaction or happiness. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the same time, like you know, struggling to make rent, you know, mm-hmm. or having to like go to your neighbor's house to eat cereal when you were a kid mm-hmm. because your parents didn't have enough money right. to provide you with breakfast. There's nothing ennobling about that. No, there that. isn't. And that's not what there's I'm suggesting either. And, and it, so, but, but what I'm saying is that there's, I mean, we probably need to narrow our sense of what we're talking about when we talk about wealth. So I, mm-hmm. everyone that I know, right, Okay. on a on a relative global scale mm-hmm. is unbelievably wealthy okay like in terms of human history in terms of global economics unbelievably well off okay right i mean reliable heat potable water mm-hmm. like you know roof over your head transportation that can be depended on, mm-hmm. leisure times and activities to do podcasts and things like that. Like that is, 
that is luxury on a scale that most human beings have never known in their entire lives, going back thousands of mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. That is wealth. Yes. That is wealth. I'm not talking about its rabid pursuit of, you know, like better BMWs or Teslas or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, sure. Okay. I agree. I mean, that's kind of, that's something like kind of ratcheted up to an extreme and mm -hmm. that would literally apply to any human pursuit, right? If you mm -hmm. pursued the accumulation of knowledge that frenetically, it would also be a kind of unsettled unhappiness. So mm -hmm. I don't want to, mm -hmm. I, to me, like the what door I open. hear when I hear things like that, is you're keeping the door open too. I'm keeping the door open. I'm not doubling down on what I said, but I have some beliefs and I'm like, okay, well, I'm listening. I'm listening to what this wealth, this idea, what you're saying, because I'm curious. I'm like, okay, have I really considered that? And I think that have, like I said, having access to things, and I know that you're not saying this, but it feels like it doesn't mean happy. It just means convenience for me. And so I'm going to keep I'm keeping what you're saying in mind for sure because I I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I I I think you have a I think you have a fair I think your um your discomfort with the word happiness I basically am in a hundred percent agreement with, and I've often you know we probably could have had a slightly more uh, uh, um, productive exchange if I had constrained what I mean by happiness. What I mean by happiness so I, is. Oh, good. No, not that, that we didn't get somewhere useful and interesting. What I mean is that what I mean by happiness, and I think this is something that uh, that I think it makes it a more useful term, mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. to actually kind of get behind, is the idea of it comes from the Greek for eudaimon, which is flourishing. This is okay. what the founding fathers were talking about. These weren't a bunch of hedonists. These were people that had read Seneca, Stoic philosophy, you know, very, Im very immersed in the Greeks. This is the idea of flourishing. Happiness to me is the ability to flourish mm -hmm. and whatever that means for you. Um, and when you take away that ability to flourish, you end up with things like mental disease, Thank right? This is sort of what yes. we had talked about. You know, when, you, yes. when, yeah. you, when you, yeah, yeah. When you, when you have closed off every opportunity to a, a minority group to an other to pursue their own flourishing. Mm -hmm. What you have is discontentment on a personal, and I, I would agree with what you said, even on a national level. So in this mm -hmm. way, I fully agree with you. You can't be happy. You can't flourish as a people if a significant portion of your population absolutely. is enslaved so. or thought of as a second-class citizen. Oh, so absolutely. I'm sorry, that sounds good. Yep. I have nothing else to add to that. That's I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, I'm actually glad. That, so, so we haven't we haven't done a lot of podcasts, but I think we had a, a slight disagreement, with it, which I actually appreciated. I thought it was productive. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I hopefully we can have some more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, we can work on that. So, yeah, Stephen, uh, thanks very much uh, for talking to me today. Thank you, uh, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you very much. 